you can turn next in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, will be kind of where we park this morning, Exodus chapter 12. We have been looking at, since Resurrection Sunday, at the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, specifically in the Old Testament Feast of Israel. And it's really enjoyable to see, and it's a blessing to see how how consistent the Bible is from the Old Testament period before Christ into the New Testament period, and how many of the things in the Old Testament period picture what is occurring in the New Testament period, specifically in Jesus and his church, his family of saints, and those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. Last time we looked at what Leviticus 23 lists as the first feast, the Sabbath rest of God. Today we'll be looking at the second feast listed in Leviticus 23, that of the Passover and unleavened bread. And we touched on that somewhat on Resurrection Sunday, did we not? And, and we find that institution, in fact, the original event of Passover and the institution of the memorial of Passover and unleavened bread here in Exodus chapter 12. And so we're going to read here the first 20 verses, and so we can kind of pick out some of the key points uh, and elements that we want to consider this morning. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with a belt on your waist, with sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a, a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which, which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. 
Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened, and all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Now we understand this event occurred while e Egypt was, excuse me, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, had they not? You know, at the time of Joseph, Israel had migrated to Egypt for the sake of food because of famine, and they had stayed there. In the process of time, they had grown as a nation, but it also had become enslaved by the Egyptians. They served the Egyptians. And, they, and God heard their cry, and he was going to deliver them out of that situation. And that, thus we have the ten plagues that we read about in the, in the previous chapters that God brought upon Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And the last of these plagues was this, what we call the Passover. The, the killing of the firstborn of any who did not put the blood of the lamb on, on the doorpost and on the lintel. And, and there's some tremendous lessons in this feast, this celebration that they remembered from year to year that, that we want to take, a no take note of because they're filled in the day and age in which you and I live today. Now we see, first of all, at the beginning of this chapter, that it's the first month of the year, but it's the first month of Israel's religious calendar. The, and even though in it's the seventh month on their civil calendar, because when you look at Israel, they have different New Years. It's specific, the most significant are the religious and the civil. And this is the first month of the religious year, and if you're wondering when that occurs, this year's Passover was celebrated on April 5th, as I understand. But the key points in this chapter is in verse 5 we see that they were to take an unblemished one-year-old male lamb. Now that's significant, isn't it? We see in verse 6 they kill it as a community at twilight, and they did it as a community. It, it really in instructs us, encourages us to recognize that the church is really a community. It's a family. It's a family of those in Christ. They were to place the blood on the, around the door, on the doorpost, and over the top, and we call it the header, the lintel, and they were to eat it that night with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and they were to eat it in haste. There was, a, there was an urgency, urgent note to that. And so we saw, it. We, we, we see these instructions, and then as you get later in the chapter, in verse 21, if you want to pick it up here, we see the occurrence. This, this was fulfilled. And Moses, verse 21, called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel, the two doorposts, with the blood of it that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out the door of this house until morning, for the Lord will pass through, the, pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel, on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And so here we find what Moses giving them instructions to the to people of Israel. And if you jump to verse 29, it says, and, I came to, and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where there was not one dead. What a tremendous tragedy, wasn't it? And, it's, and it, it was a judgment upon, Is, upon Egypt for re rejecting. Not only God's instruction to let his people go, but for, for refusal to put themselves under the blood of the pass, Passover lamb. Well, you can see in this context that God instructed Moses to institute this as a memorial. It's something they did yearly. They were to do yearly to remember God's deliverance from Egypt. And it, t and it teaches 
a tremendous lesson. But along with that, we also see there's a feast of unleavened bread that accompanied it. It was a week-long festival, a seven-day feast. It started on the Sabbath, ended on the Sabbath, when they were to eat only unleavened bread. I don't know if you've ever eaten unleavened bread, but it's not really very tasty, unless you happen to like it. I'm not one of those. And the key point here is we see that disobedience meant expulsion from Israel, which may seem harsh, from the covenants of Israel, because God was dealing with his people based on the covenants he made to Israel, and to refuse to, to obey God in, in, this, in this instance was to be expelled, was to be cut off. Some versions might even say to be killed. Some believe that may have happened. And you might say that's pretty serious. But God wants us to take his word seriously. Even in regards to eternal life, God says there's only one way to heaven. You know, all roads do not lead to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's an exclusive message. And a rejection of that message means eternal consequence, a tragic consequence. Way farther than, than what Egypt experienced, it means eternal damnation forever in the lake of hell. And so that's a key point to note in this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the purpose was to remember their deliverance from Egypt, how God had brought them out from, from, from Egypt. And during that time, they were not only not to eat unleavened bread, but it was not to be found, according to verse 19, not to be found anywhere in their houses. And God's very specific, because God wants to be taken specifically. Too many people approach the Bible generally. They kind of pick, pick and choose what they want to believe instead of studying it to see what thus saith the Lord. Our, the purpose of the inductive study in the book of John is to determine exactly what God is saying. That's what we ought to want to know, because God wants to be specifically understood because when we, as, a, as it's called in Peter, take a private interpretation towards it, a personal interpretation, assert our agenda on it, we get the confusion, the religious confusion that is around the world uh, today. God has very specific and clear instructions for his people, those he created. Now let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because I mentioned here the reason we're studying this is because of the fulfillment of this type in the New Testament. And the New Testament uses this as a specific application, a specific fulfillment of the type of the, of the Passover lamb fulfilled in the person of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would please, if you're following along. And it says this in verse 6. He says, your glory is not good. Now what does he mean by that? I'll just pause there. It means that they were, a we, we would put it today, a progressive church. There was sin in the church. It was immorality, specifically incest, and they were tolerant of it. They allowed it in the church. They didn't condemn it as God would have condemned it. And he says, your glorying is not good, which means they were glorying in the fact that they were tolerant. They were tolerant and progressive. That's, you know, that's kind of the name of the game today, isn't it? Where God condemns it, and God expects his people to condemn it as well. So he says, your glorying is not good. He says, don't you know? that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So here we have this, this idea of leaven introduced here again. Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The first thing we note here is that Jesus is called here the Passover lamb. He was he was the one who was crucified really during Passover week. And we find the timing of that in John chapter 19 when we find that when Jesus is, is being tried 
it was, it's, 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 it, was, it was a selection day, according to John 19, verses 12 through 16. When he was being tried and intervie- interviewed, it was selection day, so selection of the Passover lamb. Jesus was crucified during Passover week, and the timing, if you study that in detail, the timing of his, his selection, his arrest, his crucifixion is, that, is exactly parallel to that of the Passover lamb. And it tells that to us here. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood was spilt for you and I, and he qualified for that because he was unblemished. Remember, that's one of the qualifications. It had to be a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb, because I'm sure the tendency when through all those sacrifices that the Jews gave throughout those hundreds of years, it would have been awful easy to take your lame lamb and offer him to God because, you know, you've got to call him out anyway. But God says, no, I want your first and your best. And it was, and I want an unblemished lamb when they offered their sacrifices. And that was because God was creating a picture, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the sinless one. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was without blemish and without spot. Hebrews 7 says this, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest, the Lord Jesus, was fitting for us who was holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, Jesus could die as a substitute. The key words in 1 Corinthians is he was, he was sacrificed for us, the idea of substitution. And he, he qualified to die for us because he was sinless and spotless. He was unblemished. You know, it's just like, you know, if, if you had a traffic ticket to pay and, you know, and you and I were going out to lunch and you said, hey, let's stop by. I want to pay my traffic ticket. And we walk into the, you know, into the county courthouse and I step up and say, you know what, let me, I'll, I'll pay that for you. Now, don't start inviting me to paying your traffic tickets, by the way. <laughs> That's not going to happen. But, you know, so I take out, you know, my hundred bucks and say, oh, here, let me pay us fine. And. And they say, okay, who are you? And they look me up and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got your own fine way overdue. I'll take your 100 bucks, but, but, you, but, but you owe that fine. He's still got to pay his own fine. And yet if they look it up and they find out, okay, you know, you don't have a warrant out for your arrest. You know, you haven't been caught speeding. I wouldn't say you haven't been speeding, but you haven't been caught. There's no fine. You can, I'll take your 100 bucks and, and, and his debt is paid. That's what Jesus did. He qualified because he was innocent. He was spotless. He was the one who died for us. And you know, in that type, that picture, God created way back in the garden. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what did God clothe them with? Animal skins. What do those little animals do? They have to be slaughtered and killed so Adam and Eve could have clothes. Nothing. And God creates that picture right from the beginning that the innocent dies in place of the guilty. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's the significance of where we read in Exodus 12, 15, that if one disregarded the blood on the doorposts and so on, that they would be cut off if they they disregarded the blood and ate leaven. Because we must come under the blood. Hebrews 9, 14 says this, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
Revelation 1.5 says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see, you and I, as sinners, owe a debt to God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And we might not think our sin is that serious or that bad, but nevertheless, the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of that, there's a penalty required. There's a fine pay. We understand that. We have a judicial system. Not always a real healthy judicial system, but we have a judicial system. We understand that when there's an offense, there is a fine. There's a debt that needs to be paid off one way, shape, or form. And before God, when we sin against a holy, righteous God, God says that, that the, the, the penalty for that is death. But Jesus stepped in as that innocent lamb to shed his blood to give his life for you and I, and then he rose again victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And just like Egypt, those in Egypt had to face the night of death, that Passover night, under the blood placed on the doorframe from an innocent lamb, so is a choice of people today whether or not they're going to place themselves under the blood, whether they're going to trust the Lord Jesus as, as the one who gave himself for them. Those in Egypt who ignored this suffered tragically. The sinner who ignores the Lamb of God today will suffer eternally in the lake of fire. John 5.24 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. And that's the good news that we all need to embrace. You stand today in here, or you sit today, I guess I'm the only one standing, but you're sitting here today in one or two places, either under the blood or in your own righteousness, which is basically in your own sins. And you have one or two destinies that you're facing. Eternal separation from God, the consequence of rejecting God's provision for our sin, or you're, sta you're, or, or you're, or you're looking forward to an eternity forever and ever with him because Jesus paid it all. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever, the Bible says. You know, one of the parts of the analogy that we noted in Exodus chapter 12 of the type is that when they ate, they were, one of the things they were to eat was to eat with bitter herbs. Now, I don't know what herbs those are, but they're eating with bitter herbs. And, you know, so it wasn't, every aspect of this Passover meal was not pleasant. And, I don't think the kids had a right to say, I don't like it, I'm not eating it. No, this is, this is God's instruction. You're going to clean your plate. Every bitter herb right to the end. Because there's, any, because there's a spiritual lesson here. But why bitter herbs? And that's, that's conjecture. We're not sure. It could be, be for the reminder of what they were leaving behind. Because they had been in, 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 enslaved in Egypt. They had been treated like slaves, beaten like slaves, worked long hours like slaves, they were in bondage, and it was a bitter life they were being delivered from. They were escaping, just like for the believer today. It is a bitter life we escape from the bondage of sin and its, and its eternal penalty. Because we find that freedom in the blood of Christ, just like they found their freedom under the blood of the Lamb. But it could also refer to the payment required. What a terrible payment is required, because God doesn't like death. He didn't create us to die. He created us to live. And God never instituted death. The Bible tells us it's through man's sin that death came into the world. But death was required as a penalty, and that death was ultimately fulfilled in the Creator, the Son of God, dying for you and I. Maybe that's what the bitter herbs represent. 
the bitterness of the death of Christ, the tragedy that an innocent one, the innocent one, the one who's never sinned, in fact, the one who created us, would put himself under our sins on the cross. That's what a tragedy. And yet it is also a bittersweet celebration we celebrate every day. We celebrate it specifically in the Lord's table when we, when we remember him in our observance. But it's bittersweet because of the victory that was won. And we remember the Lord Jesus and all he did for us is with tears and with joy. What a tragedy that Jesus, the one who loves us with an everlasting love, would be so treat, treated by mankind, rejected by mankind, beaten by mankind, ridiculed by mankind, and there bear the weight of our sins at the hands of his Father on the cross. And yet, what it accomplished brings eternal joy. It brings joy to realize our sins are forgiven. I can be assured of heaven. I can be restored to a right relationship with my God. Now, what about leaven? Right, we're here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What's the deal with leaven? Well, leaven was known then and now as a symbol of evil. And it's probably because of its permeating qualities, its tendency to spread. It's a symbol of sin and evil. In the New Testament, it's, it's identified as such. And Galatians 5.9 also says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Jesus identifies one aspect of evil leaven when he says this in Luke 12.1, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his, his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And later on, he... The, he had to explain it to his disciples. He said, it's the teaching. Beware of the teaching of the, of, the, of the Pharisees, the false teaching. And the Pharisees represent false religion. Those who, are, who have a religious message but not a biblical message, a false message. And so he calls that type of hypocrisy where there is oftentimes do's and don'ts that nobody really keeps in those religious circles. That's hypocrisy. That's what false teaching creates because there is no power in keeping rules. The power comes from the person of God and a right relationship with God. And so he identifies, first of all, the false teaching as a leaven, a leaven which permeates. You know, and the common denominator in all false religions is one thing, that you can work your way to heaven. They may have different programs, different steps, different rituals, but the, com the commonality is that you can earn your way into God's favor through your good works or as the old scales of justice used to say, if your good works outweigh your bad works, you have a chance of going to heaven. It's got that mentality. And we like that because we like to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We like to put our spiritual thumbs and our spiritual suspenders in our spiritual pride and think, I made it to heaven because, because I'm so good. Whether you're a religious man, a moral man, or whatever kind of man, that appeals to us because that's, that's our culture. But God says that's not good enough, is it? Working your way to heaven isn't God's plan because there's a problem that only one, with only one remedy, and that is sin, and the, and the remedy is death. The penalty has to be paid, and Jesus paid it all on the cross. And so that leaven of, of the Pharisees, or leaven of religious, religiosity, if you prefer, the religion of working your way to heaven, he says, will spread. The people like it. It appeals, and it has spread. It's everywhere you, everywhere you look. But the Bible says it's by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the Bible makes it perfectly clear that 
our works could never accomplish what needs to be accomplished in order to restore our relationship with God. The penalty must be paid, and it was paid. It was paid in full, and it's up to you and I whether we're going to choose to trust that as our means to eternal life. Well, another aspect of leaven is it represents sin, that aspect of evil, moral badness. And Israel understood in this analogy the importance of purity in their lives, of holiness. God called them to be a special holy people that would live separate from the way the world lives. And really the implication being that they should leave as redeemed, redeemed from a sinful world. And in the, in the Bible, Egypt always represents that sinful world system in which we live. It's a picture of that. And God pulled them out of that. God redeemed them out of that sinful world and in and, and that sinful environment that they were exposed to in Egypt. And therefore, whether in Egypt or out of Egypt, they were to live lives of purity, of holiness, of righteousness. They were to pursue holiness as God's redeemed people. The feast just pictured that memorial, but that doesn't mean when the feast was over that they could live party hardy. That's not what God was saying. He was teaching them a lesson that God's people that are, that are redeemed out of the world system are to live that kind of life. And that's what we're told here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, isn't it? He reminds us in verse 6, once again, if you look at it again, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump in regards to the sin they had tolerated in their lives in their church. And he says, purge out the old leaven. You need to get, be rid of it. That's why God saved us. That's why he, God redeemed us. He says that you may be a, a loo lump since you are truly unleavened. For Christ, our sacrifice was Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, the old life, but with the leaven of, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Malice is moral badness, wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, he appeals here to us as his children, those who know Christ as Savior, to live pure lives. We've come out of that system. We ought not to remain in that world system or the morals and influences of the sinful world. And he appeals to us in this passage to our standing in Christ. When he says in the middle of verse 7, since you are truly unleavened. Now what in the world does he mean by that? Since you're truly unleavened. He's, he's appealing to us to live a life free from sin, but he says you're truly unleavened. And what he's referring to is our standing in Christ. Because as children of God, we not only stand under the blood of Christ, forgiven, but we stand in the righteousness of Christ, accepted. That's how we have the right to enter heaven, because we don't stand in our own righteousness, we stand in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him, that's God made Jesus, who knew no sin, he was innocent, to be sin for us. That's a whole lot of teaching in one short sentence. God made Jesus, this, who, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. He was made sin on the cross. That we, coming back to ourselves, might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when we trust Jesus as our Savior, we stand in his righteousness, and therefore we are accepted and acceptable to go to heaven. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so we don't stand in our righteousness. When we stand before God someday, if you're a believer, you're going to stand in the righteousness of Christ and the door is going to be flung wide open because we're accepted in the beloved one. And that's what he says here. You're already leavened positionally and you're standing. Now, you don't live like it, but you're standing. Your identity as Christians is that you are in Christ and we stand righteous in him. And the appeal is then 
Therefore, since that's your standing, live like it. Live your identity. If you're a Christian, then you should live like a Christian. That's all he's saying. Get rid of the old leaven, the old life, the old ways, the old influences, and live like it. Purge it out when it's there, the old life. And we're to keep the feast, that is the feast of relationship with Christ daily, because that's what this indicates. It's an ongoing feast that we celebrate every day of our lives when we remember and, and, and grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. We're to do so without tolerating sin in our lives. It's a call to purity, isn't it? And we're to replace that old badness and wickedness of leaven with, with the unleavened, the pure unleavened, the leaven that is free from sin, with called here sincerity and truth at the end of verse 8. Sincerity and truth. Sincerity meaning purity. Some of your versions might use the word purity. Cleanness. And truth as it's found in the word of God. That's pretty simple. Sincerely keep the Bible. That's all he's saying. Sincerity and truth. Be real. Because a lot of Christians aren't real. They don't really live their identity. But a sincere Christian, a real Christian, one who wants to walk with God, will produce a life that is characterized by the truth of God, that is the Bible, walking in, in the word. That should be the real and sincere pursuit of the child of God. It should not be one that compromises with sin and seeks to cover it with religious activity, which many do today. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's, it's put this way, put off the old man and put on the new man. That is, put off the old life, put on the new, which we have in Christ. And it reminds us that the believer who tolerates sin in their lives really is out of step with God. It doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. It just means they're not enjoying the blessings of God. They're cut off in a way. 1 John 1, 6 says this, if we say that we have fellowship with him, we're enjoying a walk with him, a relationship with him, but we walk in darkness, leaven. Then we lie and we don't practice the truth. So just be honest. When we tolerate sin in our lives, we're not really walking with God, are we? Psalm 66, 18 says if, this, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And it's not that we no longer sin. God understands that we still sin. That's the why we're here today. We're hoping to grow in grace and knowledge of our Savior, to learn to live victoriously. It's just that we deal with sin when, when it exhibits itself in our lives. When we're convicted of sin, we agree with God. That's what it simply means. You know, when you read the Psalms, especially, you know, even in our, our uh, church family scripture reading and the Psalms, maybe you've come seen those passages that have, that have been blatantly honest and the psalmist admits his sin and his, he's being overwhelmed in his sin. Psalm 40, verse 12 said this, For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Well, that's some blatant honesty, isn't it? He admits that this is, you know, I've, I'm just a failure, Lord. I can't even look you in the eyes because of my sin. Now, that's what God wants. That's what God expects for us. He knows we're going to sin. And he says in, the, in verse 13, the next verse, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And that's the key to being a Christian who is walking with God, to be honest with his sin and look to the Lord for help and deliverance and strength to make right decisions. And later in the chapter, he says this, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The Bible acknowledges our frailty. God knows we're going to sin. He just wants us to agree with him 
when we, when we recognize it in our lives. That's what the word confess means. It means to say the same things, to agree with God, to God, you are right. And the Bible tells us, he that confesses and forsakes shall have mercy. Mercy. That means forgiveness in the relationship when we're willing to be honest with God. It's a restoration of a relationship, just like it is with husbands and wives. When we offend one another, we, you know, we uh, apologize and kiss and make up. And that's what God wants. God simply wants the honesty of an admission before him. And we can move on. The Bible also, by the way, recognizes that there are besetting sins. Hebrews 12 mentions besetting sins. And yet still our hope is in him. And, and the answer in Hebrews 12 with that besetting sins is to be looking unto Jesus. Because in him we're going to find the strength to overcome those sins that repeat themselves over and over and over again in our lives. But nonetheless, God is ready to pardon. He's ready to forgive. You know, and by the way, when you and I get caught up in besetting sins that we can't escape, you could, if I could steal the adage, there's always that other aspect of our strengthening, which we could call phone a friend. Because as believers, we're here to uphold one another. And sometimes we're a little too guarded to admit we're struggling in an area because the person might condemn me, might think I'm a sinner. Well, well I am. You know, what's the big deal? But sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we need to allow the Lord to use another person to hold us up, to lift us up, to be accountable to in our lives. And so God is seeking purity in our lives. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would, please. Let's we'll take another New Testament application of this. And we need to be reminded of this, because too often as believers, we just kind of give up struggling with sin, we compromise with sin, and sometimes we don't want to give it up because there's things we don't want to let go of in our lives, and God does not like fence-sitters. He calls them being lukewarm. He spews them out of his mouth in, Revel in the book of Revelation. He does not like fence-sitters. Fence Sometimes we call them mugwumps, those that have their mug on one side of their fence and the their wump on the other side. God wants believers that are all in. Not perfect, but that are, all, that are all in in their pursuit of God. Notice here chapter 5, verse 8 in Ephesians. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's appealing once again to our identity. You once were lived in the darkness of this world system, but now you're light in the Lord. You've got the Lord in your life. So walk as children of light. Same thing he said in 2 Corinthians, 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 excuse me, when he said to keep the feast with pure leaven. Walk as children of light. Verse, verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit, who indwells each of us, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's what he produces in our lives. So we should, verse 10, find out what is acceptable to the Lord in our lives. And verse 11, we should have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. How? Well, it goes on to say, for it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. And so he tells us that when we allow the light of Jesus to shine in our life, instead of going along with them, we expose them. We point them to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, and we can look at passage after passage as reminders to be holy as God is holy. God wants to produce in us a rightness. You know, and that's not just because God is narrow-minded and he has one way of doing things. It's because he knows us for our best. Because the Bible clearly teaches that when we walk in darkness, those behaviors that we adopt under the influence of this sinful world we live in are destructive behaviors. Not only isolate us from our relationship with our God, but they bring destructions to our lives and our families. 
our nations and our churches. They're destructive. We don't see it at the time because we're short-sighted. All we see is the fun. Yeehaw, yippee. Live it up today. Don't care what happens tomorrow. But God sees the future. He knows. He's, a, he's our Father. He wants to father us. He warns us. That when you walk in darkness, it's destructive. That's Galatians 6, isn't it? You reap what you sow. And so that's why he, he wants us to not even once allow sin in our lives. And that's because, and it illustrated for us, in the point he made to the Egyptians that they were to eat this Passover meal in haste. Remember it? He says in Exodus 12, Thus you shall eat it with the belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Deuteronomy 16 repeats that. He, he reminds them that they ate it in haste. Why did they eat it in haste, ready to go? But some people say the reason the bread was unleavened is because they didn't have time to let it rise. Well, just picture yourself serving a, serving a 20-year sentence in a prison, and when, when, when D-Day comes you're probably not going to have to take time to pack when that door opens. You're going to have your staff in your hand, your shoes on your feet, your bag packed, and you're going to bolt. And God he just wants us to see the, the evil it is to live a life independent from him so that when deliverance comes, we are on the way. And Egypt is that picture of the world we live in today. It's a world system which, under which Satan has influence, over which, excuse me, Satan has influence, according to 1 John chapter 5. And therefore, we're to come out. We're to leave it in the dust, in the rearview mirror. That's the idea here. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I think when we're told to come out, there's an urgency here. That's why they ate it with haste. And it's because there's always going to be a tendency to linger. You know, when, even when Israel, when, excuse me, in Egypt, Israel left Egypt, there we go, I think I got it right, later as they were led by God in the wilderness, there were times they longed for the, the luxuries in Egypt. Well, you know what, they didn't have luxury, they were slaves. It's funny how we forget. They lingered. There's an urgency here. Remember what evil influence the world is on our hearts. St. Corinthians 6 Verse 14 says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? This is describing an unsaved versus a saved person. And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with the devil? And what part has he with, has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Which God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, live like it. What does that mean? Come out from among them. Come out with haste. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I'll be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 7, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Purge out the old leaven from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, there's an urgency here. Don't linger in the things of the world. Don't think you can play with fire and not get burnt. There's a direction here. Eagerly pursue the freedom we have in Christ to live as God designed us to live. Righteousness, rightly. And there's a goal here. For Israel was a promised land where they find the rest of a right relationship with their God. For you and I, it's the rest we have in a daily walk with Him. Urgency, come out. 
And that's what the Passover and unleavened bread pictures for you and I. Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us so that we could be redeemed out of Egypt, first of all. And Jesus, first of all, wants to save you from eternal hell, eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Because he, took, he became your lamb, my lamb. He's our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for us. He was our substitute. And in doing so, he offered one sacrifice for sins forever and then uttered, it is finished, paid in full. The debt was paid. God was free then to forgive us if we would trust Jesus as our Savior. And then, as those redeemed from, et from eternal death and from the penalty of sin, enjoy him. That's what it means to come out with haste. Live like it. Enjoy the freedom we have in Christ. Enjoy a walk with him in purity, separate from, from the influence of sin and instead under the direction of, the, of his word, the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. That's the reality that God wants to call us to. You know, everything the world lives for is a mirage. It doesn't deliver. We think it does. But that's why we always have to do get something new or better or bigger or more dangerous if you are into that kind of thing because we need a bigger thrill. Because it doesn't satisfy, does it? It's not reality. And, and, and in reality, we can enjoy some of those things to the glory of God when we put him first in our lives and we enjoy it according to his word and to his direction. See, this is the reality. Being Coming to Christ as Savior, walking with him as your, as your father and God is the reality he wants, us to, he wants to restore us to. And that's why we need to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 14 puts it this way. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that as saved men and women, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age or this present world system, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. You know, this, these verses describe what it really means to really live. Many people think that Christians live dull lives. When the world thinks that slavery to sin and its consequences is exciting. <coughs> and there may be a thrill for a moment. The Bible recognizes its pleasure in sin for a season. But to really live is to live life as God, our creator, intended. That's true freedom. That's true abundance. And that's living. So we as redeemed ones, as under the blood of our Passover lamb, need to come out and come to God as we walk daily with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, first of all, the consistency we see between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and what it pictures for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with his people. And Father, thank you that Jesus was sacrificed for us. What a tremendous, simple statement. He took my place, our place on the cross, to bear our sins. And Father, we can come under the blood through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all shall be saved, you tell us. And Father, we pray that if there's any here this morning who do not know Christ as Savior, that they would see the urgency and the simplicity of coming to faith in Christ so that they might know they're forgiven. They might be delivered from eternal hell and damnation and with us together, Father, that we can live as those who keep the feast, those who celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ with the unleavened purity of life as you teach us to walk in your word. Yes, Father, may these things we study today be helpful to us. Now, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.